So do you think capitalism might be killing us? Correction. I know capitalism is killing yeah, us. Yeah, you don't have to think about it. You're just like, you're just, you're positive. Oh, factual information. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we don't have to debate that. I think this conversation will be a lot easier now that we just, we can get past that whole debate bro part of the podcast and just talk about, would you say like the depressing stuff? I think that's yeah maybe until like the very end i think maybe there's a hopeful note at the end but until then let's just go on a little bit of a wild ride today we're going to be talking about viral justice i brought on kafia who is if i am the king of nonfiction book talk kafia is the queen of nonfiction book talk uh this is schizophrenic reads the podcast kafia is a multifaceted black feminist artist educator and writer who has gained recognition for her work on TikTok with a deep passion for building a better world through books. Kafia's work focuses on celebrating Black and Indigenous authors and encouraging her audience to question everything. You can find her on every platform under the handle at K4FIA, Kafia. Join her abolitionist book club and subscribe to her Substack to stay tuned and updated on her latest work. Kafia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I know we can talk for hours and hours, um, but no, I'm, I'm super happy to be here and talk to you. We're going to be talking about the book Viral Justice today. Viral Justice is by Ruha Benjamin, and it is published by Princeton University Press. We both read it a few weeks ago, and for me, it quickly became one of my absolute favorite books that I've ever read. It's brilliantly written, but it's also just incredibly important but so thought-provoking throughout like every single page had something that i wanted to like create a video on or talk about and i like i wish i would have chosen this as like a book club pick because i think there's just like an almost endless amount of conversations that you can have from this book today we're going to be limited to about one hour but <laughs> i guarantee you if you pick this one up with a friend you'll be talking about it for weeks coffee what did you roughly think of like I don't know, just the reading process. What did you think of the book in general? And then we're going to get into some specifics. Yeah, this is really wild because I had done my master's thesis on race after technology because that is definitely one of my favorite books. And I had no idea what viral justice was going to be about. So when I first picked it up, I realized this is way too timely. I need to take a breather. I need to take a step back. <laughs> You're like, this is too good for right now. Like this is, it's this is too, too good. many good things for me to handle. It's too pressing. It's too good for me right now. And then when uh, we were talking, we were like, oh, like we both read Viral Justice or we we're interested in reading Viral Justice. So I took some time and I read it again. And I know people can't see like um, I know people can't see me, but most of the pages are tabbed. And then I had to go to the audiobook every two sentences. I was like, this makes sense. Like, this is perfect. Yeah. Wow, this is such a great way to describe the world that we're living in right now. So no, I definitely see why it has become one of your favorite books, because it's just so impactful and so timely, given the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. Well, and one of the special things about this book is it flows in so many different directions. And with a lot of books, you would find that to be like kind of I would say, like, not a great thing. Like, it's too th spread thin. Like, it doesn't really attack, like, a central idea. I think this one pulls it off brilliantly. I mean, it talks about different subjects, and we're going to get into quite a few of them, but it talks about the medical concept of weathering, which, for people not familiar, we're going to spend a good amount of time talking about that. But it also talks about, like, 
education reform, criminal justice, food justice. Oh my, what? A, I mean, there's so many little subsections. Grind and, culture. Yeah. Like, and, rest. It's... And there's just so many, so many things. And I think we're going to get into it. But I think first, I'm going to have you kind of give us the definition of like viral justice because it's a it's obviously like a new coin term for this book i mean people are familiar with what viral is and what justice is broadly but like what what is the combination of this and kind of what is the meaning for this work yeah absolutely from what i've gathered i feel like viral justice is each of us doing our part and being active agents of social change, right? I think oftentimes what was so beautifully put at the end of the book was it's not about how loud and ferocious, like it's not about just being a loud and ferocious world builder. It's about being the quiet and meticulous world builder because we can't be doing, we all can't be doing the same things. And I think she beautifully puts it in the sense of like, finding your plot, right? So Mm -hmm. what can you do to be an active agent of social change? And I think, like you said, viral can take us in so many different directions, right? She's talking about the virus. She's talking about viral as in like social media. And it's just this beautiful double entendre. But I really think it begins in the everyday of like, how can we resist anti-blackness? How can we resist anti-blackness within the climate? How can we resist anti-blackness in our everyday lives and be agents of social change? Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think what I think may be like a, a point of contention for a lot of people is that weirdly enough, viral justice is not like strictly defined in this work. Like the ways in which we talk about viral justice from category to category isn't the exact same meaning with each individual subject. It's kind of its own amalgamation of the idea of justice. But I think it really flows well. I think it like actually just provides you with an opportunity to like think deeper about the issues and like how it does connect, especially when we come up to the component of like viral as in you know, TikTok trend viral. Like when we talk Mm -hmm. about what is viral justice in terms of like the internet age, like that looks differently and that that has different considerations compared to like how ideas spread. Um, Yeah. But they're both like important components to like our processing of what justice is going to look like, what it means for us, what we can envision it as. And I think like the book leaves it open for us to not only go with like the author's interpretations, but also bring our own kind of concepts to these issues into what I think we hope for is a future that actually is focused on justice. Cause that just like, I mean, I think the, the whole backdrop to this book is like, we're living in an off, like awfully unjust society. And it's, it's hard to even like argue that most of the systems in place in a country, and the the focus of this book is primarily in the United States, but I think it extends well beyond the borders. But it's just unjust societies galore, honestly. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you, and I think one of the most beautiful parts about this book is how she integrated her own lived experiences. It, it made yeah. all of these theories feel more grounded in, in our reality and like our current reality of what is happening in this world, right? I, I think a lot of the times when we think about, I guess the best way to put it in, in my own perspective is just like 
How can we make justice as inviting as possible? And how can we work towards getting other people to understand (laughs) that the unjust system is killing us all? Yeah, I heard, I was listening to a podcast with Ruha Benjamin and Adam Conover, and they were talking about a lot of systems of justice. Like the, the ways in which we talk about them is about removing things from the system that are harming us. So like in terms of criminal justice reform, it's about like removing prisons. It's about removing police officers from the street. But what we fail to have in a lot of these conversations about is about what we're adding and and how yeah. like the positive force of justice and the positive force of change can be a much more like pleasant thing when we have these conversations about like reform and and how do we like inspire change. It It doesn't always have to be about like what the system is lacking and how we can I mean, it's always about what the system's lacking, but how can we like take things away? But I think we have to have real conversations about what we can add to the system because ultimately that's the driving force for why envisioning the future with justice is so powerful. It's because we've added so many things to our future that just provide for something better for all of us. And that's that's really the hope behind all of it. Yeah, no. And I really resonate with that point. I think it's really powerful. It it reminds me of, uh, I know she's mentioned her in the book as well, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and how she talks a lot about like how abolition isn't about absence. It's about presence. It's about Mm -hmm. building life affirming institutions as, as, as opposed to what we are currently facing. Right. So no, I completely agree with you. I think a lot of People constantly get lost of like, if we demolish X, Y, and Z, what will we be left with, right? Instead of the ways that I've approached abolition in the past has just been like, what am I envisioning? Like, what what world are we building? How are we going to live in this world? And practicing those uh, those imagination, putting the imagination into practice every day with how I treat people. Like, I know you and I, we often talk about individualism, and I think we'll get into this later about being interconnected. But what does that mean to live as interconnected every single day? So it's little by little, in one day, eventually, we will build that better future. Absolutely. One of the first things I want to start with first, and it might end up being like one of the only things that we talk about, just because I know we are so deeply passionate about this one subject of the book. Uh, the, the rest of the book is brilliant. I, I think all of it is absolutely worth the, the time. But the concept of weathering is something that is kind of repeatedly brought up in this book. And also a concept that I feel like the average person is not all that familiar with as a concept. Would you kind of kind of agree with that? Like, I don't, I don't know that everyone mm-hmm. knows the term weathering. So in Christina Sharp's book, In the Wake, which is an examination of anti-Blackness, she says, in my text, the weather is the totality of our environments. The weather is the total climate, and the climate is anti-Black. And while the air of freedom might linger around the ship, it does not reach into the hold or attend to the bodies in the hold. So she brings up the example of her father and how she t- she talks to her father about sleeping and getting sleep and how his sleep was erratic before his passing. But she realized that sleep is not the root causes of his ailments, right? It's the world that we live in. It's the stress of capitalism that was slowly killing him. And he passes away uh, at an earlier age. And mm-hmm. then she comes to this idea of weathering, right? But when we think about the social determinants of health, when we think about the environments that we live in, when we think about um, 
the term pre-existing conditions. Pre-existing conditions are capitalism and racism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pre-existing conditions are not a set, like who has pre-existing conditions, right? So my favorite thing to say all the time is the food is not killing us. Anti-blackness is killing us, right? Um, Anti-blackness is necessitating capitalism in certain ways. And uh, essentially we are dying because the world thrives on the demise of marginalized people and people that are rendered disposable under these systems. So to weather is the ways in which your body gets worn down in these systems. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of how I took it. Yeah, well, and it, it like becomes so evident that the conversations that we are having surrounding health are so placated on these notions of pre-existing conditions. But also, one of the things that's become most evident to me in my life as a schizophrenic and someone battling with the U.S. healthcare system on like a daily basis is how conversations surrounding health are not even conversations surrounding health. Like we're not, we do, we do not have hardly any conversations surrounding like the causes of, of how these illnesses come up to be and like how we should be treating those types of things. Like for instance, I mean, when we talk about food justice and weight, um, fatness in America, like the conversations that we are having is basically just the individual level of like, a person is fat and not it has nothing to do with like sources or cures or anything it's just you're fat get on the treadmill and like th this is not actually like even the medicine medical systems that we have no it's not really a solution to just tell fat people to lose weight like even if you want to claim that that is like the solution uh, like every bit of evidence shows like it just doesn't work. Like, so not only are we like not treating what actually could be treated in any system, we're not even having a conversation about the ways in which we could actually like help people. And I think like ultimately the idea of like helping each other is like just continues to come up in this book. It's like if we have any sense of justice, it's just about like making a system and society that is better for all of us. And because we can't even have conversations about the what is harming us, like the fact that it's capitalism, anti-blackness, the fact that we're not having those conversations at all just means like the harm is here to stay. Like there's there's literally nothing that we can do about it unless we are willing to approach those subjects. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you touch on so many points there. <laughs> um, so many. <laughs> Uh, I think I think to your first point, you're absolutely correct. I think we always we always look at things at a surface level. So you see someone's fat and you're like, how about you lose weight? And when we see government policies and initiatives that target weight loss through exercise, but they don't address diet. Right. Like I, I know we talk about this all of the time, but. Say if we were to give everyone access to fresh and affordable foods, you didn't have to worry about your rent. You didn't have to worry about anything. Uh, you would There would still be fat people. And I feel right. like that is the most hard part for anyone to grasp. So I think a lot of the times when we talk about this idea of health and, and healthism and, and, and all of these things, these are systems that were created for black people to not have access to, as Deshaun Harrison says, like fat black people, this is a system that was not created for us to have access to. 
Um, but I think going back to the point of like the weathering hypothesis, um, so like it's to account for early health deterioration as a result of cumulative exposure to experiences of social, economic, and political adversity, right? So if you're already at a social disadvantage, if you're already at an economic disadvantage, which I feel a lot of people miss in their politics, and you're at a political disadvantage, and you're living in this world, it is deteriorating your body. <laughs> yeah, it's a compounding effect. It's it's the fact that like these stress factors that are caused by systemic issues, like exacerbate one issue and then the next and the next. I mean, something that gets talked about a little bit in the book, but I think it's something that people are having some type of reckoning with is like how instrumental sleep is towards like your physical well-being. Like sleep leads to, like poor sleep leads to a ton of different issues. I mean, just (laughs) if anyone's curious, just Google, if you're not sleeping enough, just Google like the list of symptoms that you might be experiencing. And these are things basically almost directly caused by like life circumstances. Like very few times is it like medical intervention. It's like, no, if you probably like worked a little bit less and like had less stress in your life, you would probably like have basically the cure that you need for most of these things. Yeah, absolutely. And then it goes into the larger conversation of like, who has the ability to rest? Who has the luxury of rest? Right. And especially folks who work like multiple jobs, like I don't and and even thinking about the added layer of social media, which we can talk about more, social media in itself is a full time job. And yeah. a lot of people um, underestimate that. But it's like a lot of the creators that we see, especially the marginalized creators, they're working like two to three jobs and then they're doing social media content. So it's like. Yeah, you're not going to get a lot of sleep. And as a result of that, you know, your body is constantly weathering. (laughs) You're going to be exposed to all of these preventive preventative diseases. um, And then they'll blame it on things like food, like nicotine, like all of these other things. But we're not addressing the root cause, which is stress. And if we go a little bit deeper... Oh, yeah, it's capitalism. It's capitalism. It is, yeah, it's always just capitalism. That's just how we get to it. Well, and, and like in the United States, not only are just all of these like a compounding issue, but then we also have just on top of it, it's kind of just like the cherry on top is we don't even have like access to healthcare for millions and millions of people. Like, so let alone the fact that like this stress and the weathering, it's killing you. Like it is actively killing you, making your life shorter. And making your life also just like less enjoyable. But if you go to get treated for one of these issues that the system is causing, it will financially bankrupt you or you just won't you won't be able to access the care for it. Like you'll you'll get stopped before you can even get started or you will just compound upon your suffering with financial hardships if you do manage to get treatment and even people with insurance at this point is it, we're seeing the same thing. I mean, healthcare in the United States without healthcare, I mean, basically any any little thing can be a financially ruinous thing, but even with healthcare people are spending like a third of their paychecks at sometimes on just like basic needs and the fact that like this is capitalism is such a great system and this is what it has for us, like maybe if you just like stop and think about it for literally any time at all, you're like, mm, I don't know, maybe we could like do slightly better. And people just, it seems like 
half the time are like incapable of having those conversations. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I think one example I like to give, but it's like a twofold issue is like the pandemic, right? So in the earlier days of the pandemic um, in Canada, where I'm based, I I think the States had something similar. They were supplementing our income so folks who were laid off because of COVID-19, they were giving them like $2,000 a month. And thinking about how that, even though like, and I want to be really specific here because I know people can take things out of context. I understand that the pandemic has killed so many black and brown people. And I don't want to take that lightly. But I also want to say for folks who were in a space of financial insecurity, the way that the government had showed up for us and had supplemented our incomes, definitely increased mental health in some way, shape, or form, right? You didn't have to worry about groceries. You didn't have to worry about your rent. So at the same time, while everything is collapsing and your mental health is going to shit, and the first thing I think a lot of people thought is like, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to pay my bills? And to have that supplemented, it did cause me a little bit of ease during that time. But I think about how could we live in a world where we have a universal basic income, right? Like how, where, like what would that do for folks who who live on the margins, who who are, are impoverished? Like what would that really do for them, and how would that ease the weathering? That is my big question. A lot of the times, yeah. Like I think I think especially like the essential workers who are mostly racialized people, who are mostly disabled people, um, and, and thinking about how we couldn't even pay our essential workers enough. And if they decided to walk out last second, our system would have been screwed. Yeah, it, it really feels like we were at this like paramount point very early in the pandemic where it was like, oh, we have to like safeguard people. Like we have to like stop evictions from happening. We have to provide checks, you know, all these types of things. And it it very quickly dissolved, you know, at least in the United States, but also kind of like most places around the world, like within a short period of time, most of these protections were gone or fading away. And yeah, it the, the pandemic came for minorities and people in poverty and disabled people. Like it, that's where the pandemic hit the hardest. And we never did enough at the height of the pandemic or at the start of the pandemic. And at least in the United States, we're just done doing anything about it. Like there's just, there's really just like no safeguards at all. And one of the things this book gets into in the topic of healthcare is on doula care, which um, I'm not going to go into like super specifics about it, but one of the interesting points that it raises is how doulas are a form of like intentional healthcare. And I think this is like one of the things that's just missing from healthcare in general. It's not just pregnancy or end of life care it's like just healthcare in general is how basically every time that i go into a doctor's office they like they're like here do this and i'll see you like in three months like no one's there to like check up on me no one's there to like help me achieve things in my life or inspire me to like make healthier choices and broadly i healthier choices and just you know, like something as simple as like getting out of the house for for someone in my position like that struggles with a lot of like social isolation being a key component of schizophrenia. Like I don't have like a care worker or any type of person that can just like, hey, do you want to like go sit in the park for a little bit with me today? Like that's not something that's built into healthcare, but like in a good system, in a system that actually gave 
any care at all in the world for me or for any anyone like these types of care would be provided these would be we would look at care as more than just what is decided by insurance companies and we would provide that for people and that to me that's just like one of the most depressing components of what the system is built for and what the system is is obviously missing is is how i see it i mean not just my own life but for a lot of my disabled friends like there are literally very easy solutions to a lot of disability issues there's also a lot of just like material needs and both of those just don't seem to be like important component components to like how we perceive healthcare or what even we think the purpose of healthcare is like we are so ingrained in a system that like hospitals exist as basically a band-aid like they are there for like the last chance of taking care of you and maybe they work maybe they don't but in terms of health nothing else is provided for you nothing else is looked out for you like you're just left to your own devices and like this type of just individualism is not just like the individualism of like how we perceive like other people's healthcare, but it's like how we perceive the entire system. Like when we talk about fatness, we talk about an individual losing weight and we don't talk about a system that would actually like help people. We don't talk about there being like food markets with ready prepared, like healthier foods. Instead, we just say, you know, that person has to eat healthier and we don't take into account food deserts. We don't take into account, you know, just uh, poverty and the exhaustion that comes with so much yeah. of life. And uh, yeah, I'm going to let you go on this. Yeah, no, uh, this food component. I, I, know I, I completely. No, no, no. I agree with you. And like, I, I think, you know, even the term like food desert, right? Like, I think a lot about it and how like it's a pretty contentious term because it's like, it just assumes that the land is sporadically barren, right? Yeah, right. It's not meticulously designed. So it's like the happening of geography. Right. Like, the happening. No, no. <laughs> so I, I often think of the ways that like these environments, these neighborhoods are meticulously designed. So apartheid is always the like Karen Washington talks about this a lot too. And I know I got a lot of heat for it when I talked about it online, but <laughs> food apartheid is, is definitely a more appropriate term to target the mm. systems in action because a desert number one implies that these are sporadic as opposed to being meticulously designed. When we know that the food system isn't broken, it is working the way that it should, yeah. right? Like why are there four to five different, why can I go to four to five different McDonald's in a quote unquote urban neighborhood, but in the suburbs you'll see within walking distance four grocery stores. Mm -hmm. And not to shame people anyways, because food is expensive. Uh, everything is going up. And I understand that like, at the end of the day, McDonald's still has nutritional value that they could provide to people, especially people in dire need. So I never want to, I never want to shame people on that. But I also think in some ways, right, I know there was an example in the book of a gentleman who wanted to start an urban garden in his backyard and yeah. how he was uh, policed for wanting to do so. The city wanted to sue him or, or something. There was, a, there was a lawsuit. But this happens all the time, like even in Toronto, when we're trying to, we have a huge housing crisis. Like there are houseless people. It is undeniable at this point. There are houseless yep. people everywhere you go, 
everywhere you go and rent keeps going up. So there's this wonderful carpenter who actually started building tiny houses for houseless people during the pandemic, and he was giving them a place to stay. Instead of the city addressing the houselessness, the housing crisis, you know what they did? Shut them down. They took him to court. Yes. The <laughs> yeah, city yeah, wanted oh, yeah. to sue him. <laughs> yep. So you see, like, even when we're trying to be innovative and create uh, and do mutual aid, which is not charity, it is literally like actively helping one another and taking care of one another. There are still these people are the ones who are being penalized. Right. So you want to start an urban garden to support your community, teach your community how to garden. You're going to get a lawsuit from the city. They're going to hit you with some zoning laws. You want to start building tiny houses for houseless people. And what do you do? You're getting a lawsuit from the city instead of subsidizing housing, instead of subsidizing food. And we see this time and time and time again. Last year, I had a viral video about a new Indianapolis city policy or or kind of whatever it was. And it was um, you could not for free go pass out food or water um, to groups. I think like you couldn't have more than three people passing out food and water uh, because then it constitutes like a public drive and then you have to like get you know it was basically just the barrier was um you had to fill out paperwork and like organize with the city about when you were going to do these things and and Mm -hmm. all it was was just simply a barrier to those things happening in the first place and if they do happen then it's a penalized thing of like yeah then you can just go find these people for doing not only just like a basic decency towards other human beings but like what should never have to happen in the first place and i think like when we talk about homes like someone building tiny homes it's like we shouldn't have to do this like how do we not yeah like how do we not like want to overthrow the system just because like the very nature of this thing exists and instead we talk about well my homeowners association doesn't allow for you know little gardens and you're like, really? Like, you can't grow your own food. You can't provide food for others. You can't provide water. You can't provide shelter for people without it causing problems because cities are not made for you. They are made in order to run a business for city development businesses. You know, like for, for z- like the zoning that exists is basically just for building new homes and building skyscrapers that people can collect rent off of like that's that's the function of these systems and it's one of those things that the book kind of talks about is the one component that we kind of haven't talked about but that we we are also just talking about is like viral can also mean the spreading and and how these things have like tendrils and how the issue of weathering can all also be the issue of access and also be the issue of The criminalization, like, you know, for someone with schizophrenia, one of the things that we have trouble is accessing healthcare. And because we have trouble accessing healthcare, then we run into criminal justice issues with being put in prison or being shot. And and this extends for so many other groups that one issue then becomes another issue, then becomes another issue. And it just injustice spreads like wildfire because we have so few barriers there to help people. Like ultimately that's what we just have a society that is not only just uncaring, but like intentionally built to be uncaring. I think we need to sit with that for a moment because yeah, yeah, there, yeah, no, I definitely think you're absolutely correct. Like 
you and I, we always agree. And I, I, I think to, to your point, it's just, yeah, that's, that's how things are by design, right? We're in a time where housing is an all-time high. Food mm -hmm. is at an all-time high. And instead of subsidizing food, they're hiring people to look after their assets, right? Like they're yeah. hiring more security. And when we think about it, it's like, yeah, like we continue to expand on surveillance and to police people, um, especially people who are rendered disposable under capitalism. Mm -hmm. So disabled people, black and indigenous people. Have you read Health Communism? Not yet, but tell okay. me about it. <laughs> this brings up a really important kind of like way of defining these. Um, they talk about these populations. Uh, and the book specifically focuses on disabled people, but it applies more broadly than that, I think. It, it's talking about the surplus. Or like we are more than the system. We are the surplus of the system, which means like basically undeserving of care. Like it's it's this really interesting concept of like denoting people into these kind of new classifications in order to like really solidify the ideas of injustice. Like when we talk about the disabled people in society, you know, one of the things is like when when we have um, employment release rates in the country, when we talk about you know, how many people are unemployed, it's, you know, it's, it's normally like 4.2%, 4.5%, and these are viewed as good numbers. These aren't real numbers. I mean, basically disabled people, old people, and people that are like so far displaced from the workforce, they're not even considered. Like these are the surplus. When we are considering like what the economy is doing, we are not at all considering it what it is doing for these populations. And it's, it's just... People that can be just kind of neglected. And um, this obviously happens on an individual level, but yeah, it's almost just not interesting anymore to talk about these, like, the individual biases and stuff, because you realize just how pervasive the, the systemic issue is. And I think one of the good things is that I've seen in my my TikTok is how comfortable I felt with not needing to be like an exceptional schizophrenic. Like I, I don't have people like remarking to me about like my individual case or anything like that. It's, it's like, I'm here to talk about the system wide abuses and people seem really receptive to it. And we're having like good conversations about these things. And it's just wild that, I don't know, it feels like we're far away from making those changes, though, at the same time. Like, I, I think we are building some sense of solidarity. We are building public education, and, and books like these are, like, a great source of it. I've been talking a lot recently about people's needing to join book clubs. Both Coffee and I do have book clubs that I think are great ways to build common ground, build solidarity, and, and continue, like, public education but we need more. You know what I mean? Like, the, the, it's just kind of just an ongoing thing. And I think one of the ways that that becomes most present as a concept is probably in the criminal justice topics of this book. I think because one of the most kind of like flagship moments of most of our lives was 2020, not only just for the pandemic, but then the Black Lives Matter protests, that like just everything became so obviously apparent. And that's a kind of big 
talking point of this book is is criminal justice. And it's realizing, like we talked about before, realizing that criminal justice is not just taking away police funding. It's imagining where funding can go. And that's honestly kind of a really joyous thing to think about to me. Obviously, like the whole needing criminal justice reform is a depressing topic, but talking about how taking away what is a huge part of the city's budget just going to police. And if you think about like reallocating that to people and the inventive ways in which we could take care of each other, like as a human species, it just like, I don't know. It's it's one of those points where this book and these topics, so depressing, so depressing. And then you get to this point of realizing like, oh, wow, like there, there is kind of this non-unrealistic hope. You know what I mean? Like there, yeah. there's more to it. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, 2020, it was like, once again, a twofold experience, right? So for some people, it was like waking up to the like to the mass injustice has been happening. I know I saw a video online. I think like literally before this call about how he, I think his name is uh blackout. Like he's, he does a lot of like pop culture. Um, he was talking about how he was the same age as Trayvon Martin when Tra- Trayvon Martin was murdered. But I think like 2020 really forced everyone to face it in, in the ways mm-hmm. that like, personally, I couldn't be on social media during 2020. It was sure. really unimaginable. But I, I think like 2020 really forced everyone to see this and be a way of like, there's a there's a viral pandemic happening and there's a racial epidemic happening and like, what can we do? Right. Um, but I do agree with you in the sense that like the, the criminal justice system, literally from its inception, it, its role is just a continuation and extension of transatlantic slavery. So yeah. there are no gaps. It is designed and it is working the way that it should. I just want to clarify for anyone listening. <laughs> but I like to think about the criminal justice system in relations to necropolitics. So the politics of like, who lives and who dies. And obviously mm-hmm. the surplus population has higher rates of mortality, right? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like at a premature death. So there are three aspects of uh, necropolitics and one of them is terror. So during enslavement, black enslaved people were constantly kept in a state of injury. So this is how disability politics really ties into anti- into anti-blackness and how ableism is tied to anti-blackness you know, essentially by keeping enslaved people injured, by keeping them working, uh, their working conditions incredibly poor, making them work when it's raining, X, Y, and Z, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But by keeping it that way, it incites this idea of terror. So a continuous injured body is inciting this idea of terror. I truly believe that the criminal justice system is always going to inflict terror, peer-to-peer surveillance, right? Panoptical surveillance in in the ways that we see more cameras popping up and the ways that we see technology continuing to police people's conversations. These are the things that are going to instill terror into the minds of black and brown people. I know in the United States, uh, the vast majority of people who are incarcerated, like the highest population of incarceration is African-Americans. In Canada, it's indigenous people. And a lot of the times it's because of this idea of being impoverished, being put in spaces where a lot of like 
I'll give you an example. Like the vast majority of indigenous women who are incarcerated have often faced incarceration for self-defense, uh, stealing. Um, but we don't see the people, we don't see the big bad monsters in prison, right? They're on the streets with us every single day. So yeah. I think like oftentimes when we think about prisons in general, <laughs> there's this pathologized view of who is in a prison and who isn't. But realistically, if we boil it down statistically, the vast majority of people are disabled and impoverished. Vast majority. I know you told me a statistic once about how schizophrenic people have some of the highest rates of incarceration. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it really is like if you really boil it down and you want to think about prisons, you think about the lived experience of those in prisons and how that also marks families. And I know Ruha Benjamin talks about how it marks families. So we can get into that in a second. But I think it's it's realistically a lot of the people incarcerated, uh, it's a cycle in which uh, the, the systems are already set up to make us fail. And as a result, a lot of people face incarceration as a means of survival. So I know in the wintertime, mm. a lot of houseless people get arrested. And yeah. oftentimes it's because there's a bed and there's a, a consistent offer of food. So... I think that definitely woke me up in a sense of like, okay, like the monsters in prison are not the people that we think. And I like to use the oh, term yeah. monsters to think about pet. <laughs> like, I know you recently read it. It's, it's, yeah, I did. Yeah, it's yeah, great. Yeah. It's great. But uh, yeah, no. And I, I think often when I removed myself from that and I got that understanding, I was able to understand like, wow, like what if we had uh, basic access to food and housing and we gave people access to you know like a doula and a caregiver in the sense that we continue to support people and when we think about when people do things that are I'm not even going to get into this today because it's a longer discussion but things around murder and sexual violence those are larger conversations on how we can continue to repair but there's a great TikTok account I think it's about prison feminism so it's uh it's a lot of these uh men talking about how they unlearned toxic masculinity and patriarchy and they read bell hooks and mm -hmm. and how that allowed them to understand some of the ways that they have harmed other people and and truly reformed themselves but those cages so to speak shouldn't have existed to begin with right we should be teaching people this from the moment that they're born <laughs> well and i think it's it, like when we talk about going back just a little bit, but I mean, it's the whole conversation. This concept of monsters is such a misdirect by the system. Um, the, the monsters of the education system are, um, you know, teachers teaching horrible lessons to young children and the concepts of in the healthcare system, it's disabled people sucking the system dry of its resources. And we we use these things as an order to like, I think, stop conversations from happening. I, I like to me, that's one of the most obvious signs that the system is is actively trying to protect itself. It's like that these conversations are difficult to have because we don't create spaces to have them, if that makes sense. Like, people talk about uh, conservatives. I love hearing about just how liberal and, and uh, radicalizing the university systems are. And it's like, no, it's, it's, there's very few places that these conversations are even happening about like what actual true justice is. 
And if people believe academia is the source of all of these things, they should really spend a little bit more time in college because even even the most like liberalized colleges are failing so hard at really attacking these issues. Because like one of the things that we've seen so regularly is these big liberal institutions, you know, Michigan or University of Michigan right now is having strikes for grad students because they're basically just almost an unpaid workforce, just living in destitution as PhD students. And a liberal institution actively was trying to get some of the protesters arrested recently. And to me, it's just like, here we go. Here's just another way in which these conversations are trying to be stopped before they ever get started. And part of the viral portion of justice has to be the com- like the social component of viral. It's it's about like we need to aggressively have these conversations, have them publicly, have them privately because that is truly I guess the only way in which we can perceive and accomplish a future that is just a little bit better. We only have uh, like a few minutes left. But one of the things that I want to do is just kind of, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot. So I hope you can forgive me. (laughs) But of just spending a few minutes just in the daydreaming stage of what justice could actually mean. Because I think when people, one of the things that I hear most constantly on my TikTok and on my Instagram and stuff is people don't want to read these nonfiction books because they are depressing. And I think in theory, yes, these are true. Because like you talked about earlier, when you start pulling the thread of each individual issue, like the history supports it being worse than you perceive it to be. I mean, you talk about like the criminal justice system, it's based on slavery, you know, like, and you keep pulling at these threads and they keep going back like centuries into just even more and more awful things that you can obviously continue to learn about over and over again. But one of the things that building up this education system does or building up this like ideology does is provides you a opportunity to see something else. You know, it's to perceive the alternate future that we might possess something that is not what the past has always built up, not what the future is holding us down to. We can perceive something that can be more than this. And I'll go first just so I don't like immediately put you on the spot and I'll give you like a couple seconds. But when I perceive actual better healthcare for myself, I don't just perceive like myself being healthier. I can I can see myself involved in care that involves other people. Like when I talk about if I had someone that, you know, would, I don't know, help me get out of the house more often and we could go for walks and we could, you know, eat meals together that are, you know, quote unquote healthy and we could spend some time cleaning, but also talking, also building relationships. Like this type of care work could also be build communities. And and that's like what a an actual like healthcare system would involve. It would involve not only just the physical and mental ailments that are obviously ever present, but it would also be like the social and the personal levels in which like we derive pleasure from this world. And pleasure is just not something that doctors are concerned with. For the most part, unless you are clinically depressed, 
pleasure just doesn't come up when you talk to doctors um for the most part like it's just for some reason we don't we don't view that as like a value to the system instead we we just put a band-aid on basically everything and when i think about my life of like how i would be the most satisfied schizophrenic living in the system i view just like healthcare being a more collaborative thing involving more people and not only them helping to take care of me but me taking care of them and having these places in which that is a value added and not just what we have to do through our own suffering of you know disabled communities taking care of each other because they're the only ones left and disabled people taking care of each other because they're the only ones that can afford to not get paid to spend time with other people like these are kind of what we have built up and what we could have could be so much better for us individually that I think we have almost even a hard time imagining it at like just how good things could be because of we're just taught that the system is okay as it is. But I'm curious kind of if you have an example that you would just think of, of, of a form of justice, a form of hope that exists out there for just, you know, any one of these issues. Yeah. Ooh, that was really beautiful. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, I think that's the beautiful part about viral justice is like uh, being able to imagine that world for yourself and for your community. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I think for me, justice would look like being able to leave my home and come home safely and to not have to worry about food, not mm. have to worry about rent and ensuring that, you know, everyone else who, who holds the surplus community uh, is able to, you know, breathe and actually enact in freedom. Right. And, and I think justice for me is like, is being able to build a world where we are all connected to each other where we are all, you know, caring for one another and where obviously at its core is just a world without stress and a sense of urgency. Like, and I think that's the biggest part is just a world without stress and urgency and the things that weather our bodies. Yeah. Um, so like, what are we actively urgent about going to work, paying our bills, doing this, doing that, and to live in a world where, none of these factors affect us. Like what could that do for our bodies and what could that do for, you know, just ourselves and, and, and how we interact and engage with one another, you know, um, my, uh, my friends say this thing, uh, about how I'm like, how I'm still somewhat optimistic. And I know nonfiction is, is, is sometimes pessimistic and it's hard. People don't want to read it because it's, because it, because it's dark. Right. But I think the beautiful part about a lot of abolitionist texts is this idea of being able to imagine your, mm -hmm. beyond your current reality and reading to find hope, yeah. reading to think that there are other people who think like you and who want to cultivate this better world. That's reaffirming. And a lot of people in my life are like, wow, like somehow you find ways to be optimistic and people have been bitter for less. One of the ways that I understand that is like people have every right to be bitter. 
People have every right to be angry in a world that is that is thriving on their demise. But, you know, what if we chose love and what if we chose compassion towards one another? What would that do for us? Yeah. That's always the big question. When you talk about like <laughs> just, just like the a world with justice is a world without stress. And I think that's why both of us latch on so heavily to the the weathering narrative of this book is that so many forms of injustice are very active. It's the policies that we put in place. It is the uh, police that are patrolling our streets and shooting our children. And there's so many very, very violent forms of weathering that or of injustice that exist. But weathering is like just this ultimate impassive and passive part of injustice like it just exists as like a baseline of what injustice is like it is the inescapable portion that the stress of just living in the system will kill you like like we talked about earlier it's capitalism is killing you and you might escape some of the the big forms of injustice especially white men you know are going to escape so many forms and intricacies of the unjust world. Uh, but ultimately, they are still even living in a system that is weathering them. Like, that's kind of the whole thing is injustice, when it exists, it is directed at particular groups, but it exists for everyone. Like, the the tantamount experience of a unjust system is that we are all experiencing it and I think for people that think that they have escaped certain portions of it, it makes them think that they are immune to it as a concept, that they don't have to worry about X issue. Uh, but that's not how the system works. Like it, it is all encompassing. And whether that's a point of building more solidarity or just a point of people realizing that death by capitalism is inescapable, like... It's just something I think we all must come to terms with at some point. Yeah, I always like to say, like, yeah, it harms us all to varying degrees, of course. Yeah. And I, I think I want people to just wake up and, and, and question because at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, we're all affected by the system. Some people may escape and think that they're safe, but, you know, I myself was talking to you before we even started recording. It's like safety doesn't exist. <laughs> Stability doesn't exist. Yeah. No matter where you go, no matter how hard you try, these things don't exist. But maybe a world with viral justice is creating stability. Yeah. It is being able to actually plant your roots, find your plot, which I think is a great way to... <laughs> I think to end on a brighter note, Ruha Benjamin says, you know, little by little, day by day, starting in our own backyards, let's identify our plots, get to the root cause of what is ailing us, accept our interconnectedness, and finally grow the fuck up. She brings up the point about the plot quite a lot. And I, I think the plot is just figuring out what skills we can use to build a better future. I know at the end, she ends off this really impactful line about you don't have to be the loudest and most ferocious world builder. You can also be the quiet and meticulous world builder. You can write poetry or live in it. You don't have to. <laughs> I thought that was so beautiful. Yeah. And 
not everyone has to do the same thing. So I guess my question for you is, what is your plot? I think so broadly, I think with like the trying to become a writer, you know, in a book and and being, you know, whatever, an influencer and starting book clubs, I think my plot is just to like, allow people to think more, you know, like, I think with every book that I recommend, my really my role in all of this is to like, just direct people into thinking through issues and direct people to be creative and to I don't know, in some sense, like, inspire them to, like, just perceive things differently or think about things differently. It's a really tough thing because it's such a wide spectrum of, like, where people can go once they, like, come across my page. But ultimately, like, I'm not here to tell people what they need to exactly what they need to believe or what they need to think. I'm just here to give them an opportunity to explore more ideas and hopefully along that way they'll like something will really click for them that will help them build up the future that i am constantly thinking about and if that is contagious at all from me then like that whatever i'm spreading the virality that i have like hopefully that is something that people are using in their own uh, lives but also just their own mindset of how they like think about the world and think about their role and think about how they can become more involved. But what do you think your plot is? I think that's really beautiful. And like, you can really see that through your work. Like, I think we've known each other for like two years now. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And it's been just amazing to watch you. And I I think little by little, you are opening up people's minds to to things that they've never really questioned before. Yeah, you know, at at first I really thought, and I, I think... This is going to be a tangent, but <laughs> at, at, at first, um, you know, I really thought change was just through trailblazing events, through like overthrowing the system and like, you know, really like change will happen in a day if we really mobilize. Mm. Um, but over time, I'm starting to realize that, you know, change is really day by day. And at times I feel like I'm not doing enough. I feel like, you know, I could be out there. I could be, you know, po- like I could be doing other things that uh, like I used to do, but I had to take a step back from certain things to really care for myself. But I realized after reading this book that no matter how large or small, as long as you are actively taking the steps to be an active agent of social change, mm-hmm. you are doing enough. And I feel like that is something a lot of people struggle with. I think my plot particularly has always been trying to make things as accessible as possible Mm -hmm. to people from all walks of life. So even the books I talk about online, even like starting the book club, which I know hiatus inactive, (laughs) but, (laughs) you know, even having those conversations and even interacting with people on a day to day basis, like I think that has always been the most beautiful part. And I think now I can firmly say like, yeah, that, that is my plot. Um, so yeah, (laughs) I think that's a really beautiful thing. Whether, whether your, your social media plot is super active or not, I think it's just, I don't know. It's just the ways in which like, it doesn't always have to be a thing that you post on Instagram. It can just be the ways in which you like carry out the relationships in your own personal life. And, and, I think we get too caught up on the viral, viral portion of it and thinking like, 
change has to come through a big million view video or whatever. And it's like, no, change is probably and only possible through just like the local communities that you have. Like it, you know, like yeah. it only happens in a localized way is, is something and, I think about all the time, but yeah. Thank you so and much I, Katya sure. for joining me on this conversation. Not to put you on the spot, but I'm sure you'll be back for, you know, another book or two along the way. You know, let's just hope it's as good of a book as this one. But uh, where can people find you online, whether you're going to be there or not? <laughs> you know, <laughs> just good for whenever you come back. So the folks can can find me at um, K4FIA on every platform. I have a book club. It's called Abolitionist Dreams, which will be coming back in May, hopefully. Uh, and then uh, I'm actually starting to write on Substack. So you can subscribe to me there where I will put all of my book recommendations. Yes. Um, and yeah, just keep up with me uh, and uh, tell me what you liked about viral justice. And if Ruha Benjamin is listening, um, if you're looking for a PhD student, I am available. So yeah. <laughs> You're no, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> well, thank you everyone so much for listening. This is the final episode. Me and Kafia are gonna go work on our PhDs and uh waste away the next forever of our lives uh in academia. Sorry, sorry about the online presence. It was a farce. We are meant for uh, classrooms. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week. I want to let you know this podcast is edited by Tone Support. For more information, check out tone.support. You can also contact me at schizophrenicreads at gmail.com. You can also check out my Patreon, schizoreads at Patreon. And if you want any more from me online, I'm schizophrenicreads everywhere. And uh, yeah. That's this episode. Next week, we'll be back when we'll be talking about white evangelical racism. So uh, hopefully you're prepared for that one. And I'm going to try to be. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Mm -hmm.